and good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith back with episode 72 of Cinema, and it's all brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. This is a kind of quasi part two uh, to episode 71 where I was looking at the extended universe concept mostly focusing on horror and Universal's dark universe. And um, the one thing that came out and I thought would be really cool to expand upon this week is the look of historical context and its relevance to horror and why it is so important. We talked a little bit about that in my previous episode. So I want to revisit that. And the last episode talked really of the decline of the Universal Monsters in the wake of World War II and, and the dawning of the Atomic Age. And I, I discussed a little bit about the, the real-life horrors that were coming out of World War II and, and most of all, the, the threat of complete nuclear annihilation in the wake of the atomic bomb after the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombings. So there, there was a whole new different kind of horror, especially as the real horrors of the concentration camps and Hitler's Holocaust started to get out to us. Uh, these old universal monsters just kind of faded away. They, they were already in decline, especially as the war raged. Uh, you know, and, and that was where we were going with this. You know, you, you extend these universes really just to give fans more of the same. I mean, that's what you're really trying to do. You're you're just trying to layer on more and more because really the standalone stories have kind of run their course. So there really isn't a whole lot more to do other than, you know, mash them up, roll them over, combine them, cross over, all those things. Look, TV shows and, and movies have done that all the time. I mean, you know, on, on Happy Days, I remember as a kid, it was exciting uh, to know that Laverne and Shirley were going to be on Happy Days or somebody from Happy Days was going to cross over to Laverne and Shirley, that, that kind of stuff. And it was always interesting to see those crossovers. It's a gimmick is really what it is. And I don't know how much of quality it, it really lends. But we're going to go a little further now. And I'm going to apply that historical context uh, kind of thing to the 80s monsters. So we got to look at that. And I'm, I'm going to start with, first of all, my own film, uh, Death House. And I want to make it clear, Death House, when I was approached to make this movie, it was already being shopped around for close to five years by Gunnar Hansen. And Gunnar Hansen of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Leatherface, of course, uh, he had his own idea for what this movie should be. Gunnar never saw it as a theatrical film. And I don't think he saw it anything more than a Valentine to his fans and the convention circuit. And that's going to be pretty important. There was never an intention to bring back all of the old actors and put them in their characters that made them famous. So when we got Kane Hodder, there was no intention to make him Jason Voorhees. There was no intention to make Tony Todd Candyman. If we got Doug Bradley, he wasn't going to be Pinhead. And if we got Robert Englund, he was not going to be Freddy. And these names are important. So I'm, I'm going to come back to this in a moment. But there was never any attention of this. And that is why the whole marketing of the expendables of horror was such a misnomer. And in my opinion, 
misleading because even the Expendables, people know they saw the Expendables, the action movies with, you know, Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, all of that. People knew that they were not coming back to play their old characters. Stallone was not playing Rambo or Cobra and Bruce Willis was not going to be John McClane. But yet there is that mentality there that people think this is going to be one gigantic crossover film. And that was not the case with the original Expendables. And it certainly was not the case with the horror film Death House. Look, it took them how many years just legal hell to combine Freddy and Jason, and both people had the rights. And they had to go ahead and do the Jason Goes to Hell, and then do a Jason X, just to hang on to the rights till, till this all fell into place. What a legal mess it was. And now look at how Friday the 13th is, embedded in litigation. They missed their 40th anniversary because of this lawsuit that's going on, and nobody knows when it's going to end. I mean, maybe it'll end when Sean Cunningham up and dies. I don't know. But litigation can go on forever, and the only winners in a lawsuit are the lawyers. So they don't care what the fans think. They can't even develop any more of the Friday the 13th video game because of the legal hangups from this lawsuit. So for argument's sake in this episode, I'm going to look at these main 80s horror monsters. And I know there were others, and I know that some came before and some came after. But these are the ones that are usually the convention heavy hitters. So here we go. You have Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, Jason Voorhees, Candyman, and Pinhead. And not in any order. These characters seem to fill out the pentagram. And these are the ones that people come and will stand in line for hours and hours and hours and pay anywhere from 25 to 50 bucks up to 250 dollars to get pictures and autographs with their icons. These are the new version, the replacements of the old Universal Classic Monsters. I call them the Holy Monster Ensemble, and they replace the mummy and the Frankenstein monster, and Wolfman, and the Invisible Man, all of those, those old ones from the black and white Universal days, got replaced in the 80s by those characters. Now there's a difference. We discussed in episode 71 that after the Universal monsters had their play, there really was nowhere to see them except in reruns, and that was when a creature double feature or a, you know, a late night movie, they played these things and you caught them on a Saturday afternoon or a late Friday night or Saturday night on some chiller theater, you know, creature feature, monster-rama kind of show. But then Cable came along. And even when Cable came along, it wasn't really uh, throwing out the old Universal monsters. They still stuck with free TV. They weren't being resurrected on HBO and Cinemax and Prism and, and all of these things. And when home video finally started to come on the scene... It wasn't like there was a line for the old Universal Classic Monsters. People always wanted what's new, what's new, and what was right in front of them. We were approaching that era of of real diehard instant gratification that the internet will absolutely seal. And I worked in a video store, and I, I can't even tell you, I don't think there was ever once 
anybody ever came into our video store when I was a kid asking for 1931's Frankenstein or Bride of Frankenstein or any of the old classic Universal monsters. There was just no demand for it. It was cool that they were there and they threw them out on, on low-grade transfers and and all of that. It wasn't until later when video was catching on and that nostalgia factor was kicking in that you started getting these, you know, Criterion collections and all this other stuff. And then, of course, when DVD came, they would add some extras, whatever there was from that era. But you still had to be a diehard fan to really appreciate them. It wasn't like the old classic monsters were really reaching a whole new generation. All of these new 80s monsters, these five, they all started on their own platform, in their own contained stories. None of them ever meant to cross over. I'll give you an example. With Halloween, Michael Myers was a standalone figure, and yet they made Friday the 13th on the heels of Halloween just as a standalone ripoff. Look, they kill their main villain at the end of Friday the 13th. It was over. It was supposed to be a quick cash grab, make some money, and, and leave and walk away from the table. But then it made money. And, and as I've mentioned in my Friday the 13th Gets Lucky episode, even Betsy Palmer didn't expect it to do anything. She said, who's going to come see this piece of shit? She did it for a paycheck to get a new car. And she did live long enough to see what Friday the 13th turned into, but nobody expected it to go on to do anything, let alone spawn how many sequels and eventually an attempt to cross over franchises. So Michael and Jason were originally created just as standalone figures. Then they became successful, and the desire for a franchise began, which I'm going to go back and argue from a previous episode, was really facilitated by Jaws 2. Jaws was never meant to have a sequel. It was a standalone film. Spielberg himself said, anything else after this story is a carnival trick. That's what he had said. So to turn Jaws into a franchise with a continuing series of marauding sharks, well, it, as you know, it devolved into ridiculousness with the wonderful Jaws the Revenge. So none of these people were really meant to have franchises. So then Halloween gave in to a sequel, the, the retread quick knockoff Halloween 2 in 1981. And then Friday the 13th Part 2, which created problems even with makeup artist Tom Savini, who thought it was ridiculous to have Jason as the killer. We only saw Jason briefly in the first film as a, as a young boy and a very frail boy at that and an incapacitated boy. How does he suddenly turn into this hulking beast going around killing more people? Well, you know what? It didn't matter. And that's what people felt. So they just went ahead and made a sequel without Tom, who returned for part four. And when I sat down with Tom one time at his home, he had some crazy ideas of how to finish Jason off. One of them involving a microwave. So when you're at a convention sometime and you see Tom Savini, ask him about the final chapter and his plan to do away with Jason with a microwave. It's actually pretty funny. Now, you can argue that Candyman really isn't an 80s monster. He appeared in the early 90s. But for sake of argument, I'm going to lump him in with the rest of these because he's part of that holy pentagram. There was a common thread with all these monsters, these new ones. And that is something that the Universal Monsters really didn't have unless you count curses. 
all the monsters really in the universal world, almost all of them really had some kind of curse to them, whether a, a literal curse, like a gypsy curse, or they were just cursed by life. And you can apply that, I think, pretty freely to a lot of these. Even the creature from the Black Lagoon was cursed by man's constant penetrating into the wilderness and technology uh, treading over this monster's isolated world. But with these 80s monsters, there was a common thread, and it was usually the have sex and die motif. Now, the 80s, we have to go back again, like I said to a previous episode, the 80s were a very interesting time for horror because it was this weird uh, mix between liberal and conservative. We had a very conservative president elected in 1980, and yet the 80s were known as a party time. Cocaine and music and techno and dancing and Studio 54 and, and all of that stuff was going on. And this is all pre-AIDS. So we're having this wild party in the 80s, but yet at the same time, we are longing for the 50s and the conservative ideals of the 50s by the election of our president, by the, the comedy movies and family movies are coming out, and that is all around Back to the Future. We were longing. Our television longed for it. We had Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. Our movies also reflected it with American Graffiti, more American Graffiti, Porky's, all of these things a reflection back in Porky's is another interesting one where you have this very liberal sex and nudity and yet it was taking place against the backdrop of a very, very conservative time. So we're going to move on now to say that all of these 80s monsters, yeah, that it was that, you know, kids have sex, they get punished for having sex and that was okay. So you go to the camp, you have sex, you're punished, you die by Jason. Uh, even Freddy, the, the have sex and die thing was lesser with Freddy. And yet, you know, we do have that look. Tina perished in the original film, Amanda Wiss, uh, right after sex with Rod. So, you know, it goes on from there. Uh, Glenn and Nancy never really did have sex, but there was a lot of, you know, simmering sexual tension. Freddy was kind of like, you know, this cock blocker is really what he was. Michael, of course, came after the babysitters because, you know, they, they were having sex and they were promiscuous. And the only one to survive at the end was Jamie Lee Curtis because she was the virgin. And then we come up with the concept of the final girl. Now, Candyman was a little different. He was the most sympathetic of all these monsters. He's kind of a vengeful victim. And really, he's possibly the, the classiest of all the monsters because he's played by the very regal Tony Todd who could just, you know, take a, a toilet paper commercial and turn it into something I would just sit and watch 50 times. Tony Todd is very much like horror's Morgan Freeman. He just brings so much class. He was the anti-Freddy. And he was also, as Freddy was, he was killed by a righteous mob. But in this case with Candyman, he was unjustly killed. But these creatures in their standalone movie, Monster Worlds, well, they had their own missions and they really didn't overlap. I mean, Michael and Jason Voorhees were really angels of death and they, they were sent to punish the fornicating teens. And Freddy was a manifestation of, of the 80s dark underbelly, this party world of excess and conservative values, but beneath that, a predatory child killer who was there, who tapped into the growing awareness of abductions and horrible kids gone missing. You know, like those stories, especially, you know, culminating with a kid like, you know, Aton Pats, uh, you know, these kids that vanished and became the, the milk carton kids, which is every parent's true nightmare, the loss of their child. And that's what Freddy really embodied. 
We also saw the expansion in the 80s of tabloid television and home video with faces of death and bringing all these real horrors to us. So that was kind of coming in and eroding things simultaneously along with these 80s monsters. I'm going to take a stretch a little bit here and say that Freddy out of all five monsters is the closest to Charles Manson. He's kind of like this cult-like predator who preyed upon kids. And he believed that he was a god and he was wreaking havoc and sometimes manipulated these kids against each other. Very Charles Manson-like. And I mean, and attacking in your dreams wasn't really all that new. I mean, we had Dreamscape at the time with Kate Catshaw and uh, Dennis Quaid. And that had tackled this subject, you know, a little bit beforehand. And it certainly was not the first. But with growing technology, there was this growing doubt in reality. And now, take the historical aspect of things and apply Vietnam and Watergate, the conspiracy murders of John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Bobby Kennedy, and and more. We had the death of John Lennon under mysterious circumstances as well. And what we were seeing isn't really what we were believing. And that is what Freddy tapped into. So you have these two angels of death in Michael and Jason. Now you have this cult-like figure who debases our reality in Freddy. And then we have a very sympathetic figure in Candyman with racial injustice and yet venge- you know, vengeance coming back for the people that did him in. And then that leaves Pinhead, who kind of sums up all of the 80s. You see, in, in Pinhead's standalone story, he was a punisher for the decade's excess because of the 80s endless pursuit of pleasure. Pinhead was a warning of this excess. And this theme carried through pretty much through all of the films, even the worst Hellraiser films. But my God, did it really stand out in that first one. So now I want to switch gears for a moment because the real thing that I'm asking in this episode is, are these monsters really relevant anymore? And can they be made relevant because of the changing historical landscape? So I want to look at something. Here we're going to go off on a real tangent. And if you remember Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, there's a scene where Spock looks to Kirk and they have this reflective moment on their ages. And Spock says to Kirk, is it possible that we two, you and I, have grown so old and so inflexible that we have outlived our usefulness. Would that constitute some form of a joke? And ladies and gentlemen, this is the focus of this episode. Have the new 80s monsters outlived their own horror? As those original part one standalone stories turned into two and three and so forth, the world was changing and it was changing fast. The fall of communism brought a lesser fear of the unknown and suddenly nuclear war dropped on the level of concerns. But smack dab, right around the middle of the 80s, we had AIDS. And AIDS became the national and global nightmare. That was the real monster. And kids suddenly didn't need a punisher in the form of Michael or Jason to tell them that sex could possibly be dangerous. So the landscape was changing as the 80s were hitting their their stride in the middle and then fading toward the end. Look, even the slasher movement, you could argue, peaked by 83, 84. There were still slasher movies, but that craze was already starting to wane. And also, by 1985, Tom Holland's brilliant Fright Night 
was already lamenting the end of the original classic monster era with its valentine to that old school horror specifically focusing on vampires. I mean, Peter Vincent is a relic from an old era and Charlie Brewster is technically new school at that time. I mentioned this in the last episode too that somebody said online to me after that episode, yeah, but you had the Monster Squad. You know, that that wasn't really the end of the classic monsters. They came back in, in the 80s and I was like, yeah, I, I guess. But the Monster Squad was already showing what was coming for the new monsters. I mean, the Monster Squad was played for laughs. It was one less beneath Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein. It had a little bit more of a serious tone, but let's face it. I mean, Count Dracula in that movie looked like he stepped out of spirit Halloween and the creature from the Black Lagoon was really a a very clear man in a suit. It, it, It was played for laughs. It was a kid movie and it has some fond memories, but I would hardly count it as anything serious in, in the canon or the entry of the classic universal monsters for horror. Now we had AIDS and it was turning into a pandemic and basically ignored at first by our very conservative president in that administration by his second term. But then AIDS, as the 80s ended and gave way to the 90s, AIDS turned to Columbine, and then that turned to 9-11, and then we had wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and sending our kids off to die. And with these worse horrors, we saw our kids also at home becoming monsters. Now our children were the monsters. They were bringing guns into school, shooting each other. Suddenly, sex was not the priority of this new generation. The horrors of ISIS were starting to come to us via the internet. And these awful, grisly beheadings made suddenly public by ISIS with access and the democratization of media made Freddy and Candyman and Pinhead Well, they all look kind of pale and silly. But the sequels continued and new timelines were created and some of them jettisoned the old canon to update storylines and and all this was done to make the sagging monsters relevant to a new generation. And and frankly, I, I don't think it worked all that well. You're suddenly going back now and you're erasing old timelines like in Halloween and this one doesn't count and this one did and and hell, they just did that in 2018 with the new Halloween. They got rid of Halloween 2, 1981. They got rid of it all, even while paying tribute to it in the very opening of the film when Michael returns to Haddonfield and goes into the house and gets the butcher knife that was being used to cut for a sandwich. Well, that's a tribute to a film that they said to ignore. So it's kind of all mashing itself up and and almost cannibalizing itself. That's really what's going on. And then the internet came along, as I had said, and it finished it all. And it solidified the decline of, of these franchises. But it did two things with it. This is what the internet did. Number one, it supported a whole generation fixed only on the now, not the then. The word old school became a new term in the lexicon. And the old 80s monsters, well, they were looked upon in disdain as as the new monsters and new types of horror came along and the slasher formula had long since worn out. And number two, diehard fans, the old schoolers, they found refuge in the internet and the convention circuit. Suddenly this strong, but by Hollywood's measures, actually small core group could have their monsters live forever 
and just stay the way they were. Now, when you go to a convention, look, when I started hitting these conventions, becoming a professional horror filmmaker, and especially being behind the camera and people don't know who I am, they don't know my face, often I would walk around these conventions and you know what was the number one thing you'd hear? It was all people my age and they brought their kids and they're explaining to Kane Hodder and they're explaining to Cassandra Peterson. They're, they're explaining to all these people where they were when they were kids and what that movie meant to them as kids. And now they brought their kids to understand and pass it on. But the young kids sometimes standing there, they're polite. You can tell they're bored or they're just like, I don't get it. Who is this guy? Who is this lady? I don't understand why my dad is so excited, but I'm here, but I'm a little embarrassed. Not all the time, but you're seeing this I'm passing this on to a younger generation thing. This is nostalgia. This is longing for what they feel was a better time. Now, make no mistake, Hollywood noticed. That's how Star Trek The Motion Picture got made, okay? And that was because of these very vocal fans and powerful fans who buy merchandise and want to see more. So Hollywood did notice, and it started going back to these 80s monster movies And they started creating new canon and timelines. Like I said, like, you know, Halloween H2O and Resurrection. And and then we did all these different spinoffs. And then there's, you know, the 2018 Halloween. And we did it with Friday the 13th. And we have Jason X, which goes off in a totally different direction. And, And, you know, all these new installments. And we had Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which basically made everything a meta movie. But more than that, reboots and remakes came along. And they came along to squeeze the last of these monsters for everything they were worth. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, the legal issues with Friday the 13th and Freddy gave us what, in my opinion, the very silly Freddy versus Jason. I know it has its fans, but I always say that, you know, look, if it was so great, why wasn't there a sequel? In my opinion, the monsters were played for laughs. It was an R-rated Abbott and Costello movie. It took 14 scripts to give us a silly plot that showed just how hard it was to jam these two monsters into a single film and make a coherent storyline. Jason and Freddy, they just don't fit. And the simile that I used of the last episode of a puzzle piece that you just want to wedge into that puzzle, even though you know it doesn't fit, but it's close enough and it'll fill that piece up, but you can still tell looking at the overall puzzle that the piece doesn't fit. That is Freddy versus Jason. These remakes and reboots, they were aimed at at old school with the hope that they might bring new school with them and start the franchises all over again, similar to what J.J. Abrams did with Star Trek. So as I start to wind this down, are these monsters relevant anymore? I mean, the things that define them are, are no longer contextually relevant. Where exactly does Freddy and Michael and, and all the others, these other three, fit into our present world? The very things that spawn them are no longer the top concerns of today's generations. COVID has further marginalized these monsters. I mean, all efforts at reboots and remakes have been met with indifference and tepid box office. I mean, again, if Freddy versus Jason was so great, then why wasn't there another one? And if you go back, Mad Monster Party, if you remember that kids movie, also, you know, cartoonished up the old classic monsters. And I actually thought of a Mad Monster Party remake But instead of using the classic Universal monsters, what if it was Freddy and Pinhead and Candyman and Jason? And what if they were no longer scary? 
And Dr. Frankenstein needs to do something to, to make them scary again so they don't fade into obscurity like the old monsters did. But how do you compete with ISIS and disease and terrorism? These 80s monsters are confined to the world of nostalgia and conventions. As their stars, the people who play them actually age and they leave us, who's there to replace them? Name one new monster. Name one new character. The Terrifier? Pennywise? Maybe. But Pennywise is an 80s construct from another horror icon who has strained as of late to also stay relevant with a brand new generation. We also now have generations who think that Rob Zombie's Halloween is the original Halloween film. They have no idea of the 1984 Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm Street movie. They think the 2010 remake is the original and it bombed. But here's the other thing. It bombed quietly. It wasn't like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2010 was this resounding thud. It just went away with a whimper. Nobody cared. And really, what was there for Freddy to do? 2018's Halloween scored well overall with fans, but it's just really the same thing all over again. Even getting rid of the 1981 Part 2, it didn't help much. It just added to the growing evidence that, that these old franchises are struggling to find a place in a world that has moved on without them. The extended universe mashup game in horror seems related to series in decline. It's played for laughs or more cynically, squeezing the last out of these franchises before it just all goes away. Can they be resuscitated? Can Candyman survive in the vein of another Get Out or Antebellum or Us? Maybe. Also add to the list that we're all now so offended. Studio horror is very cautious. Many elements of these original horror films would not play well today, and, and their overall themes prove this in the rejection of these films, by old and new school fans who are often triggered by the most ridiculous of things. Old school doesn't want remakes or reboots in fear of their memories being fucked with. Just look at Ghostbusters 2016 as a perfect example. And the new school, well, they just simply don't care. They just ignore it. They move on to the cooler and what's now in this TikTok generation. I'm not sure what the future holds, but to me, it appears grim. And at the close of this episode, news just came in while I was recording this, that Robert Englund joined the cast of Stranger Things Season 4. And so he's joining a part of tribute and nostalgia to a genre and an era that has long since faded and is no longer contextually relevant. What are your thoughts? This is Harrison Smith. Thank you for listening, and I hope this podcast finds you well. Thank you.